Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 27th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. My guests for the full hour are human rights activist and veteran journalist Colin Stewart and writer-actor-journalist Rob Salerno, who today will cover the scope and background of the anti-homosexuality law of 2023 adopted in Uganda May 30th this year, after many years of proposals, and then draw actual connections from Orange County. First, Rob Salerno, based in Los Angeles and Toronto, focuses on topics such as national, provincial, and municipal politics, community organizations and activism, human rights law, crime, media analysis, HIV, AIDS, and immigration and refugee issues. As a theater artist, Rob has been honored with the Dora Awards for writing and acting. Rob is the artistic director of 10-Foot Pole Theater, a Toronto-based theater company. His original plays, Balls, Big in Germany, Effing Stephen Harper, How I Sexually Assaulted the 22nd Prime Minister of Canada and Saved Democracy, Raw, and First Day Back have played in Canada and around the world. Author of the book Smashing Young Men, Rob has also had work published in Vice, Advocate, National Post, Metro Toronto, Now Magazine, Times, Fab, Homerazi.com, iWeekly, and Outlooks, and he's appeared as a commentator on CTV News and Sun News Network. He is best known for his work as a reporter and columnist with Extra, Canada's gay and lesbian newspaper, now dailyextra.com. Rob earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science and Cultural Studies at McGill University and his Master's of Arts in Drama at University of Toronto. And returning is Colin Stewart, Colin, a journalism veteran of 45 years, including work at the Orange County Register as a blogger, columnist, and assistant business editor. Before that, he was a Knight Bejet Fellow in Business Journalism at Columbia University, the business editor at a newspaper in suburban Boston, the editor of weekly newspapers in Massachusetts, and a reporter for the Christian Science Monitor. In 2012, he launched and remains as editor of the news, citing Erasing 76 Crimes, which covers the human toll of 67-plus countries, anti-gay laws, and the struggle to repeal them. In 2017, he became president of the St. Paul's Foundation for International Reconciliation, a California charity that promotes LGBTI rights through advocacy journalism at the African Human Rights Media Network, which has rightsafrica.com as its central website, at also 76 Crimes en Francais, which provides news in French of the struggle to repeal anti-gay laws, nostringsng.com, a media platform committed to advancing LGBTQ equality and providing resources for Nigeria's LGBT community, Rainbow Caribbean, a Facebook page for the LGBT community in the Caribbean, Colin is also the editor of the book From Wrongs to Gay Rights, Cruelty and Change for LGBT People in an Uncertain World. 
Through his affiliation with St. George's Episcopal Church in Laguna Hills, he met the Reverend Canon Robert Ogle, who is one of the co-authors of that book. The aforementioned St. Paul's Foundation also supports Project Not Alone, which publicizes the plight of Cameroonian LGBTQ prisoners and raises funds to feed and free them. And QTalk, a mobile phone app providing free confidential advice to LGBTQ Nigerians. Tools will eventually cover as we close with a constructive prescriptive conclusion. Colin comes to us today from Laguna Niguel and Rob from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rob Salerno, and welcome back, Colin Stewart. Well, first, I want to take us back a bit to when this show first considered the homophobia in Uganda. Over the time, the legislation was proposed, like from 2009, and there were all those amendments until the law's adoption this last May of 2023. I'd like for you to sort of lay out what was going on over that time, Colin. In Uganda, there has been a maybe a building wave of homophobia, certainly a, um, a strong level of homophobia. And it began in the parliament in 2009. And it was actually bill in 2009 was proposed by David Bahati. He and many Ugandan legislators are fundamentalist Christians or Muslims. In terms of homophobia, that's they're, they pretty run pretty even, unfortunately. He had support from Americans, such including prominent Americans involved in the National Prayer Breakfast. There's also a, a prayer breakfast in Uganda, and also been supported by um, organizations such as World Congress of Families, which has done a lot of work suggesting advancing anti-gay laws in countries such as Nigeria. In any case, that that bill was there in the parliament in Uganda until late 2013 when it was passed, um, sort of on a sudden sudden move in the, in the parliament without a full quorum there, as it turned out. And President Museveni signed it in early 2014. It was challenged in the Ugandan Constitutional Court, and it was overturned in August of 2014. Then it went, the whole idea went into hibernation or something like that for a while. And then starting last year and more strongly early this year, the supporters of anti-homosexuality bill uh, began working again, again with support in the background by Americans such as Aaron Slater of Family Watch International, who is mostly focused on uh, trying to eliminate comprehensive sex education, but she's done things such as setting up Zoom calls and having a WhatsApp group to discuss the tactics of getting an anti-homosexuality bill passed. Then. Um, it was passed almost unanimously it was in earlier this year. I think it was March. And there was only one member of parliament who, who uh, voted against it. And then the president sent it back, didn't agree to the first version that was passed, made it, suggested a few changes, mostly along the line of allowing Ugandans who are, who are gay 
to seek help for that as a medical mental health problem. And there's a deep belief in this that in Uganda among the conservative religious figures and parliamentarians that homosexuality is something that can be cured. They're a believer in the quite discredited theory that conversion therapy works and turns can turn gay people straight, which is in other contexts is, you know, in, in a Western context in many professional societies, it's well known that that's wrong. But the law was changed to allow people not put themselves up forward for conviction for saying they are homosexual. And then uh, at the end of May, Museveni signed it and it became law. The reaction has been fairly dreadful in Uganda in terms of people being scared to go to health clinics. So it's very likely to have a really serious impact on the battle against AIDS and HIV. Let me tell about what the, what's in this law. What's in the bill? How are, Yes, how is, exactly. are gays and lesbians and queer folks criminalized in this? Exactly. exactly. Yes. The Ugandan anti-homosexual law of 2023 calls for 20 years in prison for promoting homosexuality, which includes in the minds of the proponents of this, people who believe in human rights for LGBTQ people. It also includes the death penalty for a category that they create called aggravated homosexuality, which means the repeat offenders. It means same-sex relations between someone who is HIV positive and another person or children or other vulnerable people. They're 14 years in prison for whatever this means, attempted aggravated homosexuality. There is 10 years in prison for attempting to have homosexual relations. Seven years in prison if you rent property, an office or a home where it's known that there's homosexual activities or where homosexuality is being promoted. So that means that landlords of any gay rights group is also in danger of prison time if they don't evict the organization. And a final one other noteworthy part of the law is 10 years in prison for being involved even as a, an attendee at a same-sex marriage. Not to say that, that same-sex marriages are recognized in Uganda, but if you have something that looks like one, you could be put in prison for 10 years. If you just joined us, my guest for the full hour are Colin Stewart, president of St. Paul's Foundation for International Reconciliation, co-founder of African Human Rights Media Network, and editor of 76 Crimes blog based in Laguna Niguel, and Rob Salerno, writer, actor, and journalist, also a contributor to 76 Crimes. He's based in Los Angeles. So Rob, let's have you take up the matter of who's singled out. Are particular genders at risk? Because so much of the coverage I see is about gay men with targets on their back. But is that right? In, in a way, yes. Uh, you know, a lot of these laws come from, you know, th their origins are in the British uh, colonial era. And uh, at the time, Britain's laws specifically targeted gay men. There were no specific laws 
targeting same-sex uh, activity between women, um, in part because, uh, you know, the story goes at the time that the British simply didn't believe that lesbianism existed. I don't know that that is uh, actually true. There were other laws that lesbians could uh, could be charged under, like disturbing the peace and, and so on and so forth. The sort of like the really vague laws that are, are sort of like catch-all uh, things that a, a colonial administration could use. However, you know, these laws, they tend to go after gay men, uh, trans women, in the sense that these are, you know, real challenges to the sort of national conceptions of masculinity, which is so important for, you know, certain conceptions of what a nation is. And and if you're in a very, I don't know if uh, uh, fascist is the right word to use here to describe uh, this environment, but this sort of attitude that that elevates the importance of masculinity, um, which is common in these sort of dictatorial uh, oppressive environments, um, you know, there's there's a real sense of wanting to not let that side down, which is why transgression is so dangerous and and uh, seems like it must be punished so severely. At the same time, you know, queer women do face particular challenges in these environments. Uh, you know, they are targeted under this law, this law in particular in uh, in Uganda. However, you know, they, they also feel uh, fear, particular uh, risks and challenges uh, that arise just from misogyny, you know, the lower standard that or the lower um, uh, standing that women have in uh, in these societies, uh, the precariousness that uh, they can suffer um, for not having the economic opportunities that men have. Lesbians in particular across the continent face the threat of uh, what's been termed corrective rape, which is when uh, men sexually assault queer women uh, in the belief that the woman just needs to experience sex with a man to cure her of lesbianism. These things exist. These these laws are coming after all queer women or all, all queer people, whether they're men, women, trans people. They can affect intersex people as well. And then they go after... Uh, uh, they go after other precarious populations, including sex workers. Uh, there are a lot of queer women who turn to sex work because of economic precariousness. It's a very, you know, dangerous climate for all queer people. Thank you for that. And so let's talk about then the effect of this kind of legislation in Uganda and where it's catching on around the African continent and beyond, maybe Southeast Asia and elsewhere, is the effect of this legislation with the individual's ability to associate, to congregate, the individual's choice in having what kinds of partners, the individual's opportunity to express themselves. And then I, I'm going to keep listing them and you can sort of take them in the order that you prefer, Rob, is the way in which public health is affected. If people are not out as queer, then they are, may not be a healthcare measure addressed mental or medical health. And the fact that gaining literacy, getting any kind of literacy out of sex education, the, all of those kinds of hazards, could you address each one of those for us with that kind of legislation? So in addition to the problems with healthcare clinics, 
having empty waiting rooms because people are scared to show up because they think they could be arrested and, and imprisoned. Many people are being thrown out onto the streets, becoming homeless because landlords are afraid that they're going to go to prison if there's a known gay person on their premises. So, and even the HRAP is a legal aid society that's still going to work as lawyers defending LGBTQ people, but no one other than the lawyers is going to be allowed anymore to have any discussion with anyone regarding LGBTQ issues because it's only in the attorney-client privilege is respected. Anybody else would be in legal jeopardy if they talk to somebody about LGBTQ rights. So it's pretty dreadful situation and people on the streets, people scared to get health care and a number, unknown number, but many are trying to leave the country, either trying more desperately than ever to go to the West or they're just moving with their feet to Kenya, which has a little bit of a uh, more advantageous situation. Could you address each one of those for us, Rob, with that kind of legislation? Yeah, let's start with the individual liberty angle on this. So it's actually becoming a fairly uh, settled matter of international law that individuals have the right to individual sexual autonomy, by which I mean uh, choosing their partners, choosing whether their partners are of the same sex or of the opposite sex, you know this this has uh, this goes back to a decision by the United Nations Human Rights Committee way back in I believe 1994, a case called Tunin versus Australia, where a man took Australia to court over the fact that it's uh, one of its states, Tasmania, maintained uh, laws that criminalized same-sex activity, and the United Nations Human Rights Committee found that these laws violated an international human rights treaty called uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It found that these sexual choices are are a basic element of human freedom that states have agreed to protecting by joining this international treaty. More recently, uh, I think it was uh, uh, last year or the year before, the uh, Committee for the Elimination of All Discrimination Against Women found that a law, the laws prohibiting uh, same-sex activity in Sri Lanka, violated the treaty prohibiting discrimination against women. So it is, uh, it's becoming a, a clearer international standard, um, and particularly for any state that ratified the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights after 1994, they knew what they were getting into. There, there can be no argument that this was a, a new right that was invented and foisted upon uh, states that had joined the the treaty before it was spelled out by uh, the committee. This uh, covenant has not been ratified by every country in the world, but CEDAW, the uh, Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, has been ratified by uh, virtually every country in the world, except for, I believe, it's Tonga, the United States, and... Um, God, I'm, I'm I'm drawing a blank here, but there's only like four states in the world that have not ratified it. It might be Somalia. Oh God, I shouldn't I shouldn't actually list states if I don't know them off the top of my head. But um, 
you know, these are these are established norms. And it's becoming recognized in court decisions that are striking down sodomy laws all over the world. There were recently sodomy laws struck down in places as uh, far away as, as uh, Trinidad, as uh, Barbados, as uh, Botswana in Africa, that have had the courts cite these international decisions, these international precedents as reasons why these laws can't stand. You know, they, they are recognizing not just under the international laws, but under their own domestic constitutions. The right to sexual partner choice is a right to identity. It's a right to expression. Expression is, uh, you know, not just being able to say what you want, what you believe, but the right to express your sexuality, to express the most intimate parts of yourself. These are actual recognized rights that that people have. And then, you know, when it comes to association, freedom of association is, again, a well-established right, uh, both in, you know, most countries' domestic constitutions, but also in international law. And what this, um, among many other things that this law in Uganda is trying to do, is it forbids uh, association of gay people, it, it forbids uh, it for it forbids activism. It forbids promoting or talking about homosexuality. It forbids advocating for gay rights. Uh, forbids forming organizations. Forbids even renting facilities to gay people. This is like it, it. There's it's so clear that what this law is trying to do is to crack down on established human rights conventions, uh, human rights norms, and uh, not just international norms, but these are these are norms that are in the constitution of Uganda. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's very much cracking down on, um, on all of these elements of, uh, of human rights. And, you know, there's, uh, like I, I said earlier, Uganda is a country with something of a veneer of democracy. It does have an active parliament. It does have elections. Uh, however, it has a president who's been in power since the early 90s. Uh, that's not a marker of a thriving uh, democracy. This is a, a country with a very limited public sphere where, you know, cracking down on expression functions to keep people in power. And that's part of what this is about. It's keeping people who might be opposed to the current political structure from organizing. And it's in a way, it's it's a part of the thin edge of the wedge, you know, like saying that, you know, if we're, you know, we've when you get people to agree that we're not going to let the homosexuals organize, it makes it easier to then say, well, we're not going to let the women organize. We're not going to let um, the opposition organize. We're, we're not going to let, let labor anyone organize. organize. Exactly. That's where it's going. That's sweep. That's what it ha it's heading to. Yeah. So, and another part, I, if you finish with that, that yep. I'm, I'm concerned about, there's also the, the same kind of disingenuous argument is being made by so-called progressive influencers. They're trying to make it look like there's this outside intervention for, you know, colonial or this reasons. They're taking a grain of the truth and they're blowing it up as though it's a into a more conspiratorial kind of intervention from the international community. So it's not just the leaders, but those influencers that want everybody's eyeballs. So it's yeah. a pretty pervasive kind of a pressure. Yes, no, there, there's definitely 
this sort of popular idea that the, the West is forcing homosexuality onto Africa, this foreign notion that is being thrust onto Africa, onto, you know, uh, Asia, wherever, which is just absolutely, uh, completely untrue. Homosexuality has existed in Africa since the dawn of humanity. Um, it is well documented that there were homosexual uh, relationships and uh, well-known homosexual uh, relationships in African societies pre-colonial times. It's it's simply a way to other queer people even further. Um, and when it comes to, just to cycle back to what we were talking about, about uh, the fight against AIDS and public health, is under this law, the things that PEPFAR does become illegal. You know, how there, there's a reason why USAID has to step back, because if PEPFAR continued doing what it was doing, its workers would be uh, exposed be to legal liability. They're, yeah. they're, they'd be targeted. Um, you know, you can't have, uh, and then there's the question of what does an HIV AIDS outreach program look like that does not mention homosexuality? Uh, who is that serving? How is it serving? How is it doing anything? Could it possibly be successful? Uh, and I, I don't. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not uh, an expert in HIV and AIDS. I just I don't think that it could be very successful if you're suddenly tailoring your HIV and AIDS messages to not mention things like safe sex, to not mention things like homosexuality. You know, we've we've tried things like abstinence education. They don't work in the United States, at least. It's really, it's it's really just a cynical messaging ploy, uh, you know. And and quite frankly, I think the government is very happy that uh, they have intentionally laid these landmines for foreign donors. And if the money is pulled out, then they can say, well, this is more colonialism, and they can boost themselves up as being anti-colonialists or standing up to global bullies when, in fact, they are the ones who are bullying their own populations. And the legacy becomes one, two plus generations of absolutely no sexual education literacy, which is its own kind of a public health care debacle. It's, I mean, what we're talking, we're approaching maybe a, almost a second generation influenced by this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know how uh, strong the messaging is in, uh, in Uganda uh, around safe sex. Because we've all also seen like a retraction here in North America around how prevalent safe sex messaging is, you know, growing up, I grew up in the early 90s and or early and late 90s. So, you know, there were commercials all the time about safe sex and condoms. And, uh, you know, we saw bus ads and things like that all the time because the HIV and AIDS epidemic was so prevalent in North America. That has since pulled back. I don't know, you know, we've got pockets in the United States where safe sex education is not provided at all and and pockets where children are continued to be given uh, safer sex education in schools. And and you can see divergent results of... Uh, Absolutely. Of, the yeah. outcomes with that maternity health outcomes and all that, it's very clear here. And mm -hmm. on the anniversary of the Dobbs decision that today, as we're recording this on the 24th of June, if you just joined us, my guest are Colin Stewart, president of St. Paul's Foundation for International Reconciliation, co-founder of African Human Rights Media Network and editor of 76 Crimes blog, and Rob Salerno, writer, actor, and journalist, also a contributor to 76 Crimes blog. So in preparation for this, you and Colin had talked about 
the agency that African civilians have both for what they're legislating in the name of gay rights or what they're restricting. So I'd like you to explain that because I, in preparation for this whole interview, I was expecting we were going to make connections back with Orange County and John Eastman's organizations. And I wanted you to lay out that you understand there are grassroots, there are institutions pushing back against this homophobic kind of legislative movement. Yeah, I do tend to caution people. Um, There is a tendency to sort of act as if African people in particular do not have any agency on this issue, that these laws are simply a legacy of British colonialism that they are stuck with. And there, there's a, a nugget of truth to that. There's a nugget of these uh, these laws were imposed by British colonial authorities. However, uh, the British left Africa, you know, almost 60 years ago. Um, these laws remain popular in a lot of Africa. And, you know, not every country that has anti-gay laws was a former British colony. All the Lusophone co- uh, countries had them uh, as well uh, at one point. You know, French countries uh, didn't inherit these laws from France, but some of them adopted them more recently. Chad is the most recent example of a country that has uh, adopted uh, an anti-gay law in 2017. Uh, Also, Gabon uh, adopted an anti-gay law in 2019, uh, however, repealed that law less than a year later, um, in part uh, after some pressure from France. But um, There's also an increasing trend that is maybe a little underreported of what's going on in Africa, where a number of states have dropped these laws. We've seen in the last decade, just off the top of my head, Lesotho, Mozambique, Angola, Sao Tome and Principe, Botswana, Seychelles, uh, Guinea-Bissau might be a little bit more than a decade ago, but uh, all of the Lusophone countries have uh, gotten rid of these anti-gay laws. I know what francophone is, but what's lusophone? Oh, sorry, lusophone is uh, Portuguese speaking. So there were there's a handful of of colonies in Africa that uh, the Portuguese were the first Europeans to colonize Africa, uh, and they were the last to leave. But those countries are uh, Cabo Verde, Guinea Bissau, Sao Tome and Principe, Angola, Angola and Mozambique. Yeah. Okay. And and some of these uh, laws are done away by uh, the legislatures, by elected bodies that happened in uh, in all of the Lusophone countries that happened in Seychelles as well. And I believe in Lesotho, we've seen the court strike down the anti-gay law in Botswana. But we also saw, you know, the government chose not to fight it. They accepted the decision and it was a Supreme Court decision. There wasn't much they could legally do, but they could have uh, raged against it. They could have tried to pass a new law. They did not. So we are seeing this fight in some corners of Africa actually winning. Uh, and indeed, there's uh, there's more states where these laws are being challenged by the courts, or in the courts, rather. Namibia, Malawi, and Mauritius all have uh, pending court decisions on decriminalizing uh, gay sex. We did, however, see that um, Kenya had a decision about five years ago where the courts upheld the law. And that's uh, that's been quite unfortunate, given uh, what's happening in East Africa lately. But, you know, these laws are changing because Africans are leading the fight. There are uh, civil society groups in Africa that uh, are representing the sexual minorities. Uh, In Uganda, there's a group called Sexual Minorities Uganda or SMUG. 
there are groups in most of the democratic nations of Africa where civil society is possible, where there's room for that. We actually just saw in Eswatini uh, just last month, the Supreme Court forced the government to reconsider its decision to deny registration of a gay and lesbian advocacy group. Um, so they are going to uh, have to um, likely issue the the registration for that group, which will help the gay and lesbian people of Eswatini to organize and mobilize and, uh, and hopefully push for a repeal of that country's sodomy law. This progress is happening. Um, and in fact, you know, I like to say to people, this what's happening in Uganda uh, and in other parts of Africa right now isn't happening because gay people are invisible. If gay people were invisible, they wouldn't have a target on their back in these countries. This is happening because gay people and lesbian, queer people, um, I should say, in these countries are starting to organize and are starting to become visible and are starting to have victories and are starting to change people's minds. And that's what makes the government so scared. I even just kind of compare it to what uh, your listeners might be more familiar with here in the United States. Stonewall was a riot because uh, police were cracking down on gay people because gay people were becoming more visible. And as the pride movement progressed in the United States, you know, e even pre-Stonewall, a lot of people think that the uh, gay rights movement started in at the Stonewall riots, but it, it had been going on for decades in the United States at that point. It was the increasing visibility of queer people led to more crackdowns, led to more states trying to restrict gay people's rights. We're seeing it even today. You know, the, the huge sweeping victories that uh, in particular trans people have had in the last couple of years have led to this huge attempt in red states in the United States to crack down on trans rights, to crack down on trans healthcare, to crack down on trans expression. All the, th like, it's it's the very same playbook. And, you know, the, the thing that I like to say is that usually this doesn't work. Rob, this okay. works in the short term, but not in the long term. Rob, I want to just pry open, a, a, take a metaphor out of all this that I'm, take Stonewall. That was the door, the door to that bar in New York City. It cracked open. Everybody filled up the Stonewall bar. And in time, eventually they filled up Dodger Stadium. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the movement. And that's mm -hmm. what you're saying. The, the visibility and, and access. And so that is a really interesting sort of an indicator. So Colin, before we get into the good news projects that are shoring up and supporting this targeted population here. I'd like to know what brings you to all this work over these years? What kind of skin do you have in this game? I'm a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male from a privileged background. And I, I think coming out of that privilege is a somewhat uh, self-deluded think that uh, an idealistic point of view that people should be treated fairly. I've been treated fairly, so everyone should be treated fairly. Specifically, I go to Episcopal Church in Laguna Hills, and there in a couple of decades ago, the priest was uh, the Reverend 
Albert Ogle, gay priest originally from Ireland. He was friends of my wife and me. And his ministry after St. George's was um, the St. Paul's Foundation for International Reconciliation, which is working to help LGBTQ people around the world. And he put together a, a conference in Washington when the International AIDS Conference was coming to the United States for the first time in a long, long time because Obama had been elected president and the prohibition on visas for people who had HIV was lifted. So it was possible to have an AIDS conference in this country once again. And he raised money to bring LGBT rights activists to Washington, essentially to make the case that you're not going to be able to get rid of AIDS, to successfully combat AIDS, if you are declaring that anybody who is HIV positive and anyone who is gay is a criminal. And so these people came together and my wife and I helped raise money. I went to the conference in Washington and got to know these folks and realized that my talents and my experience as a journalist and an online work could be helpful to them. So out of that came the Erasing 76 Crimes news site where activists who can write in these countries, their work is published. And that, is, that, that began in 2012. Okay. So that's a very good transition into the good news and sources that you recommend for people to follow these developments that you yourself are producing personally. So let's talk about some other projects. There's one project, Not Alone, We'll have you consider also the QTalk app, as well as you mentioned fleetingly the Rainbow Railroad, but talk about those three sorts of areas where people are able to be supporting this targeted population. Sure. The QTalk app is a counseling service for LGBTQ Nigerians who for this similar situation of being scared to show up and make their themselves known, are reluctant to go to a counseling service if a counseling service would accept them. Instead, they can download this app and for free have contact with counselors who will talk them through whatever problems they might have. Uh, we often will have a example on the Erasing 76 Crimes site of the sorts of problems. I mean, they're, they're just human human problems of how do I deal with this relationship? How do I deal with that relationship? Plus an over overlay of I'm being blackmailed because I'm gay, things like that. So um, it's a lifeline. This is it's the- a life, definitely a lifeline. And that was supported by readers of the Erasing 76 Crimes blog. And currently, we are putting together, developing an iPhone version of it's. It now exists as an Android app. We're putting together an, an iPhone version. The other project, um, is, which is one that we're actively uh, raising money for, is Project Not Alone. It's something that we have been doing since about 2019, if I am remembering correctly. This is 100% 
a proposal, well, as was QTOC, a plan proposed by the activists in, in Africa, working with me to figure out how to bring it to reality. So the reporter in Cameroon, he has a deep motivation to go into prisons and provide food for prisoners who are there for the only reason being that they have violated the anti-homosexuality law of Cameroon. And we began raising money to provide that food because the, the, the folks in prison there, they get one meal a day and it's dreadful and it's unhygienic. Soon we learned that if we could raise money to pay their fines, they, in under Cameroonian law, you're, you're signed, you're, you're sentenced to a particular, you know, it's often six months or a year. And if you pay your fine, you get out at that point. But if you can't pay your fine, which these poor people almost never can, they have to stay in prison for another typically four months to work it off. So we were able to get them out early, win them early release by paying the fines. And we do that, you know, the whole process begins with identifying who are the eligible people who are ineligible because it's not they're there because they're gay, but they're also a criminal. So they're out. Identify who they are. Reporter writes their story. We publish the story in Erasing 76 Crimes. And then we ask readers to donate money. And donated money is used to buy the food and to pay the fines and whatever. We have lawyers who work pro bono, uh, but they have expenses of paying those expenses. And um, between 2019 and now, we have fed and freed early um, at least 24 people. And this year, we are raising money for 13. And if you look in the blog, the news site, you won't find these stories yet because they're just happening. Wow. We're breaking it here. Yeah. Breaking it here. Yeah. So there, there are two trans women in Nigeria who were attacked by homophobic youths. They had a hair salon. They were attacked by homophobic youths. And as that often happens, sadly, the police respond and arrest the victims. So they had not been tried. We, we raised the money to pay for what their fines would be. And the, the uh, lawyer negotiated. So they're, instead of, they were charged under Nigerian law with homosexuality offenses that would give them seven years in prison. And uh, we, I guess I haven't gotten the final date, but it's looking like it's down to time served plus a month approximately. So they'll be out within a few weeks. And then there are two gay men, a, a couple um, near the, in, in Fu, which is near the Cameroonian capital of Yaoundé, and they had served six months, I believe it was. Uh, we paid their fine, and they got out just a few days ago. So we haven't gotten it written up yet, um, but we have that news. So there's still nine to go this year. We're still raising money because we don't, at this point, have enough money to um, pay the fines of everybody, all the full 13. And if people want to support that, uh, I would suggest going to the news site, 76crimes.com, 76crimes.com, and scroll down to important work funded by our readers. It's like four lines down. And there's a how to support QTalk and Project Not Alone. And then there are the stories about 
you know, like Helen and Otto, victims of homophobia, are ready to leave prison if donors allow. Those are the two that we haven't reported this yet. You're breaking it. This news that those two guys have been uh, allowed to leave. Something to look for is that I've been in touch with Tasha Jacqueline, who is a lesbian rights activist from Uganda. And what she is putting together, it will be an appeal for funds to provide LGBTQ-owned housing in Uganda because of all of the evictions and homelessness that's being created by this new law. So that's, I don't have details of that, but I know that it is a an idea and a plan in progress. So keep watch. So then you mentioned one, which I have no association with, but I have knowledge of, which is Rainbow Railroad. Right, and this is a vehicle through which these people who've been released after being incarcerated, whether they're going onto a Rainbow Railroad to find safety elsewhere, is that how that works? Um, it would be certainly possible, but it's not my awareness that that has actually happened. Okay. Um, typically, one of two things happens. Most frequently, they they say, thank you so much. This is great to get the support. We're back to our trying to put our lives together in the, you know, in the poor sections of Yaoundé. And then sometimes we have been able to raise some money to provide some help in getting a new business started. So we trained a hairdresser. There was two guys who have started up with a very modest support from us, a a cell phone business. It's just having a an umbrella and a table and a cell phone, and you rent it out to people. And uh, those are the two two ways they go there. So the Rainbow Railroad is focused on helping would-be refugees become refugees and asylum seekers. These are LGBTQ people in the sorts of countries we're talking about, including they, they had a whole bunch from Russia or from Chechnya, actually, that they arranged the transportation and the resettlement. So that that is a very good organization there at rainbowrailroad.org. And they're a, a tax-exempt charity in Canada and in the United States. Oh, and by the way, the, the donations to QTalk and to Project Not Alone go through the St. Paul's Foundation, which is a U.S. tax-exempt charity. And in the, the Rainbow Railroad also, just recently, because of the horrors going on, the governor of Canada has responded by having a special contract with Rainbow Railroad. The amount of money, I don't remember, but it's the... Canadian government is supporting Rail Rainbow Railroad to help get people from these homophobic countries. So when I saw the map for Rainbow Railroad, the global map of areas where homophobic codified law or cultural kinds of impositions are targeting lesbians, gays, bi's, trans, and queer folks, I noticed there's a bit of a pattern with Muslim-majority countries, homophobia, and the entire Russian nation. And to tie up that observation with the moment we are in right now, Colin, as we conclude, is do you see, in fact, this invasion of Ukraine, shoring up Ukraine, is holding the line against Russian homophobia and Russian-sponsored homophobia outside of Russia? 
I think it's one aspect. There are this unjust and bloody and horrid war has had one um, positive effect in Ukraine, which is that, say, 10 years ago, well, you know, when I was writing stories for Racing 76 Crimes in about Ukraine, it was about like attempts to have pride marches or did the police bother to protect pride marchers from homophobic hooligans who would attack? So it, Ukraine has not completely shed its homophobic past, but it's moving toward a much better, much better future. And it is a, a distinct contrast to Russia, where the government is heading in the other direction and has, you know, has tightened up its anti-gay propaganda laws, it's called, where they any positive reference to LGBTQ people is now against the law. It used to be just against the law if there were children present, but now it's against the law of anyone at any time. And they've also been shutting down a number of human rights organizations, including gay rights organizations. And that's not happening in Ukraine. And in fact, because LGBTQ Ukrainians were among those, it seems like among every single Ukrainian opposed to Russia, many of them have volunteered and are on the front lines. And it's known so that the typical, as I understand it, the the average Ukrainian citizen now has a much better appreciation of the worth of LGBTQ Ukrainians because so many of them are joining with their straight brothers and sisters and in fighting against against the Russian invaders. So that that has caused a change definitely for the good in that horrible situation. And I think that overall, from a broader point of view, the the number of countries that have laws against homosexuality is slowly, slowly, slowly decreasing. So as as Rob was mentioning that once the Stonewall occurred, that what happened with Stonewall was that gay people that at be pre-Stonewall, gay people were invisible. And so the the success of the gay movement, the LGBTQ movement, is that the presence of gays is actually the challenge, the threat to the homophobic agent. So this now is a this is what you're acknowledging and recognizing everywhere. So Colin, you've mentioned that folks can follow the developments through the 76 Crimes blog. Is there any additional resources that you would recommend as we close? I mean, there are lots of there, you know, gay-focused publications, but I would say you can follow 76 Crimes online as a website. You could also find it on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, Mastodon. You can find it on post.news. So, I mean, all of those are, are possible. I don't know that anyone else quite does what, what we do. Thank you. That says it all. Thank okay. you so much. Let me say these two couple things that, um, so, so one is in the, the 1980s, 
there were still like 92 countries that had laws against homosexuality, and now there are 67. So there's an important, slow movement. Most of the countries where there are with anti-homosexuality laws are Muslim-majority countries, but not a majority. That's about 49% of those countries are Muslim-majority. About 44% are Christian, and of the Christian-majority countries, many, many are former colonies of, the, of Great Britain. The British Empire imposed a lot of anti-homosexuality laws, and in many countries, those have been embraced and continued to this day. Although it's definitely the countries that are shedding those laws, the former British colonies are doing it the most quickly, and Muslim-majority countries are have doing it very slowly, if at all. So, Rob, you can close with what are best resources the most reliable ones you'd like the listeners to use to follow these developments for the most credible kinds of takes? Well, you know, I would start by saying read76crimes.com. That's uh, the website that Colin and I uh, edit. You can also follow me on uh, Twitter. I am at lgbtmarriage.com. On that Twitter feed, I post news from around the world in the fight for not just marriage equality, but for all LGBT rights. And I update that daily. And uh, yeah, there are so many LGBT organizations and groups and charities out there that are providing help and resources to queer people. Every country has one and you might take a little Googling to find it, but you can, if you're interested in any one of them, you can find it there. You can usually find them through 76 Crimes as well, through our reporting pages on each individual country. And yeah, there's lots of uh, great groups out there like Rainbow Railroad that are helping people from these countries escape and protect their lives and start new lives in places that are safer. So I want to thank you both for your time. I appreciate all that you're doing, Colin and Rob. Thank Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. My guests were Colin Stewart, president of St. Paul's Foundation for International Reconciliation, co-founder of African Human Rights Media Network and editor of 76 Crimes blog, He's based in Laguna Niguel and Rob Salerno, writer, actor, and journalist based in LA. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, as promised earlier, we're going to bring back Jackie Mentor, executive director of the Orange County Jewish Coalition for Refugees, and really give her the floor about the plight of refugees, a real Fourth of July show. Uh, and a P.S. I hope the coverage that we do here on Ask a Leader gives you a facility to consume with care the bat guano crazy news that we all took in last weekend.